Join me in prayer, please. Lord, we come to you into your presence, and we admit that, Lord, we are very aware, we ought to be very aware at least, that we should not be there. Lord, that's because you are light, and in you there is no darkness at all. And that, Lord, in our hearts there is darkness, utter darkness at times. Lord, your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and yet, yet our thoughts are sometimes evil. We want what is wrong. We, we do not want what is good. And yet, because of Christ's death and resurrection, you forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You present us as pure and blameless before you, and then you work in our hearts that would actually live like that. Oh, Lord, we read in your word, How happy is the one whose sin is covered and who the Lord does not bring to account for his sin. And and Lord, we are those people if we're in Christ. So Lord, we pray that we would be happy. Lord, fill us with joy in light of your gospel that we can even pray to you. Lord, let that be a, a reason for our great and exceeding joy. And Lord, we pray that this joy would create in us a longing for that gospel message by which we come to you to be shared, to be to be proclaimed, to be advanced. We pray that we would say with Jeremiah uh, that if we do not speak your word, it would just well up inside of us. Lord, give us a love for your gospel and a joy in your gospel that we'll see its proclamation, your gospel's proclamation, to be our singular joy. And we would long for that. And even consider whatever discomfort, whatever disadvantage to us is actually good for the promoting of your gospel. We, we pray that we would not just think that way in our heads, but we'd actually feel that. We pray that our emotional state would reflect that truth in your word. Lord, we thank you that we're not the only church in your area that believes your gospel. And we pray for Wallace Presbyterian Church over by College Park. And we pray that you would, as, as uh, Pastor Scott is preaching your word, you would create life amongst the people and they would love you and know you and follow you. And we thank you for the evangelism that they're doing at the University of Maryland campus. And we pray that that would grow and increase and you would bless that. And Lord, now as we turn to your word, we pray there would be work in our hearts by your word. Your word is sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts, it exposes our motives It's complete truth, and it's pure light. And as we come underneath of it to, to, you know, receive its instruction, we pray that you would be doing something in our hearts that would uh, expose that, reveal how we must repent and change, but at the same time, see your wondrous grace and mercy upon us in Christ. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today's sermon is going to be about economics. You're looking at me, yes? Economics. That's what we're going to talk about today. Really, economics. That's because the truth in the passage that Monica read for us, I think, can be best understood if we look at it from an economic perspective. Now, don't worry. It's not going to be hard. You see, part of what economics is, is really how we assign value to something, and then we choose to give up something that is of lesser value in order to gain something that is of higher value. And that's economics. And we do that all the time. So, so for instance, um, 
let's say you have $10 in your pocket. Now, now that's probably valuable to you, at least some degree, right? You're, you're not going to use it for scrap paper. You're not going to make it into a paper airplane and throw it off a building just for kicks. Um, if you do, then you can give that to me, actually, if it's so unvaluable to you, right? No. Um, but anyway, you, you, would, you would say that it has value, yet if after church today you're at a restaurant with some friends and you're really hungry and that hamburger or that salad, whatever particularly appeals to you, if that looks really good, you're going to fork over that $10 in order to get the salad, aren't you? And you're going to do it with joy. You're going to be glad to. It's, it's not going to feel like a sacrifice to you because you want the hamburger more than you want the $10. So you give up what is of lesser value in order to gain what is greater value. Let's say your car breaks down this week. And that's, a, that's a bummer. And it's going to cost $500 to get fixed. Assuming your car is worth more than $500, well, what do you do? And you have it. You fork over the $500, Right? You, you, your car is more valuable than the $500, so you give up what is of lesser value in order to gain what is of greater value. One more example, more serious kind. Suppose your child is uh, sick, a serious disease, and you don't have enough money to pay for the, the surgery or whatever the child needs, so you have to sell your house. Now, if that were the case, what would you do? Well, you would sell your house, right? Because the child is of greater value than the house. And, and you wouldn't feel like you're being robbed of it. You would gladly give it up because you are gaining what is of higher value. You'd be happy to do it. See how this works? We make these kind of decisions every day. I mean, is this outfit worth the money? Is this project worth the time investment? We make decisions based on the degree of value we give something, and then we uh, uh, give up what is of lesser value in order to gain what is of greater value. And we're glad to do it. That, that makes us happy when we do. That's economics. Now, okay, what in the world does it have to do with this passage? That's the question. It has everything to do with this passage, I think. Well, let's look at it again. Look at verse 12. Uh, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That's what Paul is writing. Now, what happened to him? Well, he's in jail. Jails back then were dirty. That was a miserable type of existence for Paul. It was not fun. Um, And he's suffering there. But his example of suffering for the sake of the gospel has encouraged other people to be more bold in sharing the gospel. So the gospel is actually being promoted more than if Paul were out of jail. However, some of the people who are promoting the gospel aren't doing it because they love the gospel, but really they think that somehow they're promoting the gospel is going to hurt Paul. They're doing it out of envy and rivalry. And yet they're still preaching the true gospel. Now, that's what's happening. What's Paul's take on it? Look at verse 18. We'll fill in the middle as we go. But look at verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or as truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. See what's going on here? Paul rejoices to exchange his freedom and his reputation for the advancement of the gospel. Why does he do that? Because the advancement of the gospel is of greater value than his freedom and his reputation. 
You see, Paul joyfully gives up what is of lesser value in order to gain what is of greater value. What is of lesser value is his freedom, his reputation. What is of greater value is the gospel. That's amazing, isn't it? I mean, think things that people would value in life. I would imagine freedom and reputation, as well as comfort, would be about the highest that we would like, right? Take other things away, but don't take away my freedom, and don't take away my reputation. And yet Paul gives them up, and sees it as a joy to give them up, in view of the advancement of the gospel. He's not bitter about it. He's glad to. Why is that? It's because Paul's greatest desire and his greatest delight is the proclamation of the gospel. Period. That's it. He's willing to give up anything else so far as it advances that goal. Now that, that priority is clear from the content of what Paul says here. But I think if we, we understand more about the structure of the letter, it'll be even more clear. Um, Letters back then followed a specific form. All letters basically follow a similar form, right? There's the greeting, hello, you know, dear people. And then you usually say something about yourself. And that would have been very customary back then to say, you know, after you greet them, say, hey, I'm doing well or I'm not doing well or whatever. We, when we were missionaries overseas, we wrote back to people in the States and we followed that kind of pattern. We would give people updates about how our family is doing. This is the part in the letter where the recipients expect Paul to say something about himself, how he's doing. But does he actually say how he's doing? Look at verse 12 again. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's not talking about how he's doing. He's talking about how the gospel's doing. You see that there? Right at the place where you would expect Paul to say something about how he is faring through all this. He doesn't do that. He says something about how the gospel is faring through all this. How the gospel is making out. And then when he finally does talk about himself, verse 18, he says that he rejoices because of how the gospel is doing. What preoccupies Paul's attention is not his welfare, his state, what preoccupies his attention is the state of the gospel, how the gospel is doing. Now, what makes Paul happy are not circumstances that are agreeable to him, it's circumstances that are agreeable to the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, imagine you were to be able to chart Paul's emotional life. You know, have a chart of, uh, that, that shows, you know, is Paul happy or sad, that goes up and down based upon how Paul is, is feeling. You were able to chart Paul's emotional life. And then imagine you were to take that chart and sort of overlay it with the circumstances that were going on. I think you, what you see here is that, that Paul goes happy when the gospel is advanced. Paul gets sad when there's obstacles to the gospel. He, his emotional life tracks according to the progress of the gospel. Because he rejoices when it's shared even though that's bad for him. My friends, let me ask you, if we were to chart your emotional life, what makes you go up and down? Would it be, and then, and then we were to take that and overlay it with the circumstances in your life, what would we find it tracks according to? What makes you go up and down? Is it success in your job? Is it good grades in school? We have some... some uh, People here in school. Would it be when your marriage is going well? Would it be when your kids are thriving? Would it be when you have money in the bank? 
Would it be when others respect you? When you're able to be comfortable? Would it be when you feel loved by other people? You feel part of something? Or would your emotional life chart according to the progress of the gospel? But see, we don't really have to peer into your emotional life. Not that we could if we wanted to anyway. We just have to ask um, what you've given up for the advancement of the gospel. And not only what you've given up, how you feel about that which you've given up for the advancement of the gospel. Well, friends, in the last year, what sacrifices have you made for the advancement of the gospel? In the last month, in the last week. What have you given up so the gospel would advance? And, and I know many of you give up a lot. I, I know you give very generously to the support of the church, and, and that is great. But how do you feel about that? Is it, is it joy? And scripture says God loves a cheerful giver. If, if the advance of the gospel is of greater value than, than you know, our comfort and our life, then what we give up in order to advance the gospel, we should treat as a transaction that brings us joy because the gospel is being advanced. But when you give, are you giving with joy? I recently read of a really significant, a great example of somebody giving up things, sacrificing, not, not willfully, but something, somebody viewing their hardships in light of the gospel. It was a, a book I recently read called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Con- Convert. It's by Rosera Butterfield, and it's about her rather dramatic conversion. I encourage you to read it, though I warn you that it's not rated PG. Um, she came out of a life of being a lesbian and a woman's study professor. And then she talks about that experience and how she related to her former colleagues. And she noticed that at the very beginning, after her conversion, she was very happy and she wanted to tell the other people about her conversion or about Jesus in her life, but they weren't terribly interested. And then a few years later, she got engaged to a man, and, and then the man broke off the engagement. And all her former friends now saw her not happy, but in pain. And one of them said to her something very close to this. They said to her, we weren't interested in what Jesus was to you in your joy, but we are interested in what Jesus is to you, what your Jesus is to you in your pain. And then she recounts of this really strange experience of suddenly becoming a counselor and really trying to help all these people who have a worldview that she totally disagrees with, and they totally disagree with her worldview, but yet somehow they're coming to her for help and counsel, and she's able to share the gospel through that. And she talks about how she wouldn't have chosen to go through a broken engagement, but she sees that it is good for the advancement of the gospel. She looks back on that with joy. Friends, how can you use your present circumstances, particularly circumstances that don't exactly uh, make you feel good for the advancement of the gospel? And then how can you look at those with a sense of joy? Now, I've been saying the word gospel over and over again, but I haven't actually defined it, and I need to so that we kind of know what we're all talking about. So let me share with you what the gospel is. And friends, believe me, I'm not doing this just in case there are some non-Christians here with us. Now, if you're here with us and you're not a Christian, please pay attention because this is very important. But if you're here with us as a Christian, please pay attention as well because this is what we need to have as most important in our lives. So here's the gospel. It is that God is perfect. He is holy. There is no flaw in him at all. As we prayed earlier, he is light and there is no darkness in him. He is beautiful. His holiness is absolutely gorgeous. God is more valuable than anything else. 
There's nothing more glorious than him. And he made us for himself. He made us to know him, to enjoy him. He also made us to obey him because he is a God. He is our Lord and master and we are under him. He made us for himself. But we haven't obeyed him. We haven't glorified him. The Bible says that we've actually become evil. We've turned in on ourselves. Instead of seeking the glory of God, we seek the glory of ourselves. We've become proud and puffed up. We, we love things that are not good. We don't give attention to the things that God says we ought to. And therefore, God has just cause to send us away from him for all of eternity. God is good, and therefore, he must be good to his own character. And because his holiness is most valuable, his holiness must not be compromised. He must not let sinners into his presence. But yet he loves his people. And so he sent his son to to come and take on their sinful condition. Christ became one of us. He did not sin. He was perfect. He obeyed his father perfectly. And yet God put the punishment for our sin upon him. God treated Christ as if he were a sinner as if he rightfully deserved the punishment that we do. And he did that so that, Christ, so that God could treat us in Christ, as if we lived the perfect life of Christ. He could reward us with what Christ deserves. Friends, that's a beautiful message. Because then God welcomes all who believe in him into his presence as his children. He adopts us in Christ. How much does God love us? Well, the answer to that, if you're a Christian, is that how much does God love Christ? And that's how much he loves us, because he loves us in Christ. For those who repent of their sin, who believe in him, they are his. Friends, that's a a beautiful message. It's a message of redemption. And I think about how, in our world today, we love redemptive stories, don't we? I think of uh, Les Miserables. just came out as a movie. It's a movie, it's a book, it's a, a musical. It's all kinds of things. It's so popular all over the world. Why? I think because it's a... It's a redemptive story. We love redemptive stories, I think, because we realize we need redemption. And this is the greatest redemptive story of all. Because God has taken his enemies and turned them into his possession. That he would lavish his love upon us. I love the line in the song that we sang last week. um, My song is love unknown. My Savior's love to me. Love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. It summarizes the gospel in a beautiful way. God loved us who were unlovely to turn us into objects that are lovely, that he would cherish. And then, not only that, he will return. Christ will come again, and he will take those who are his to himself. They will be with them forever. He will wipe away all tears. He will dry all eyes. All that is sad will become untrue. Friends, that's the gospel. Friends, do you believe it? Do you trust it? And friends, if you believe it, if that is the message that you stand on, how can it not be most important in your life? How can it not be of first importance? Paul in 1 Corinthians says, I give you what is first importance. And he gives them the gospel. If this message is true, how can it not be of first importance? It's about how you're reconciled to God. It's about how you escape eternal conscious punishment. You see, apart from the gospel, nothing in your life has enduring value because nothing in your life is connected with God and his life. But with the gospel, everything can have eternal value because everything can be about advancing the gospel and knowing Christ. 
C.S. Lewis talks about how absolutely silly it is to ever say that Jesus was simply a good person. Good people don't go around calling themselves the Messiah. Uh, Either Jesus is who he says he is, or he's a lunatic and a dangerous one at that. Uh, The same can be said for the gospel. Either this message is of most importance. Either you should stake your life upon it, or it really is dangerous and foolish and should be disregarded. What is it to you? If it is most important, then it makes sense for us to sacrifice for the advancement of the gospel. And it makes sense to look upon those sacrifices with a sense of joy. Now, what happens if you're here today and you're thinking, okay, yeah, I believe the gospel. message I think is true, but yet I don't feel any sense of joy about it. I mean, you can't just just turn on a switch and make yourself feel joy about something. Our our, our lives don't work that way. Um, What do you do? Well, let me give you uh, two things to do. One, pray. Pray that God would give you a love for the gospel. I mean, I prayed that earlier, that, that our emotional life would match the truth that we actually believe. Pray that God would give you joy in the gospel. And pray that for one another as well. I mean, if if you're thinking, hey, I lack joy in the gospel, I lack the appropriate measure of joy in the gospel, which, quite frankly, is all of us, right? None of us have the joy in the gospel that we ought to. If you're thinking that, I think you could imagine that your brothers and sisters in Christ are thinking that way as well. So I encourage you, pray for them. Pray for one another. That's Last week we talked about praying for one another. It's an important thing we should do. Pray for one another that you would have joy in the gospel. And second, rehearse the gospel over and over again in your minds. I just shared it to you a couple minutes ago. Share that to yourself over and over again. Uh, I gave you this encouragement before, but let me do it again. Share the gospel with at least one person every day. Make that commitment. Share the gospel with at least one person every day. Hopefully you can do more than one person. And I think if you do this, you will. But at least one person. And make that one person yourself. Start with yourself. Share the gospel with yourself. Convince yourself of its truth. Start out every day like that. Now, I've also shared before that this was helpful in my life. After A few years after I became a Christian, my Christian life wasn't particularly going anywhere terribly great. It was sort of just wallowing a little bit. And, and some friends of mine challenged me to partner with them in sharing the gospel with other people. And I said... A little bit hesitantly. Okay, I'll do it. And I realized pretty quickly that I didn't really know the gospel very well. So I determined myself to learn it, to understand it. And the motivations were not terribly spiritual. I just didn't really want to look like an idiot, you know, a babbling fool. I'd already be sort of seen as weird. At least if I was going to be weird, let me be weird and know what I'm talking about. Appear that way. So I I studied it. I rehearsed it. I learned it. And and what happened in my life was just great transformation as I began to more and more build my life upon the gospel. That was sort of the seed that helped me realize that I should go into ministry so I can, you know, study the message more and promote it even more. So if you don't feel joy in the gospel, one, pray and ask God to give that to you. Beg God, plead with God to do that. Pray for one another and rehearse the gospel in your minds. Let it be of first importance. Now, the main uh, truth that we see in this passage, I think, is pretty clear. Um, The gospel is worth more than anything else. And Paul views the setbacks in his life 
is actually gain because they advance the gospel. But we have a little bit more detail in that uh, than just that. We have the two specific ways Paul talks about that there were setbacks in his life that advanced the gospel. And those don't particularly apply to us as directly unless you happen to be in jail for the sake of the gospel and other people are trying to ruin your reputation because they're preaching the gospel, which I don't think is anybody in here that I'm aware of at least. Uh, but there's some truth in here that's very helpful for us. So, so let's look at these two things that were setbacks for Paul that advanced the gospel in a bit more detail, and I think there's things we can learn from here. One, the first thing is that Paul's suffering for the gospel has made people more bold. Paul's suffering for the gospel has made other Christians more bold in sharing the gospel. Now, that's what we see here. Look at verse 13. It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So in other words, it's public knowledge that Paul's not in prison for a crime that he committed, like you know, uh, stealing or murder. He's in prison for the sake of the gospel. That's, that's common knowledge to everybody. Now, what effect does that have on others? Notice how he ends this. And most of the brothers having become confident in, my, in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. See what's going on here. People see Paul's imprisonment, and they're confident in the Lord. They're more confident in the Lord because they see Paul's imprisonment. And the principle here, I think, is clear. When others see you bearing a cost for the sake of the gospel... It encourages them in their boldness for the gospel. And that's not just something we see in Paul's life. It's something we see throughout the Bible and throughout church history. When people suffer for the sake of the gospel, it encourages others in their boldness to share the gospel. So, for example, about 60 years ago, five missionaries who all met at Wheaton College went to Ecuador to bring the gospel with a uh, tribe that had, had no contact with the gospel before. Many of you know this story. Jim Elliott was the most famous of the ones who were there. They arrived, they, shared the, they tried to you know, make contact with the tribe, and they were all speared to death. Now, that sent shockwaves in the campus at Wheaton College because these men had not graduated that long ago. Now, what do you think? Do you think that the college, after seeing these people um, brutally murdered for their faith, martyred for their faith, do you think missions was... You know, a greater thing at the school or a lesser thing at the school after they saw what happened to these missionaries? How many think greater? How many think lesser? Yeah, it was greater, far greater. A lot of people wanted to be missionaries after they saw uh, these people died. Why? Because the cost of sharing the gospel encouraged other people to be more bold. Let me give you another example. A man named Robert Thomas was the first missionary to go to, a Protestant missionary to go to Korea. He was from Wales. And the story has it that he was spreading uh, Bibles and tracts, and, and he knew it was dangerous. And one time he got caught up in a conflict. It wasn't particularly oversharing the gospel, um, more because he was associated with some Americans. But anyway, uh, he ended up being killed. But then the person who killed him realized later that he had actually killed a good man, a man who wasn't trying to hurt them at all. And he took Thomas's Bibles and then he put them all over his house as wallpaper. Um, and then others would come and read, the, uh, you know, read his walls 
And, and many people were converted, and there's a church there to this day. And now uh, the, the Christians in Korea, South Korea, are sending out more missionaries, you know, percentage-wise, than just about any other nation on the earth, including America. Now, and many of them who go out, go out inspired to some degree by Thomas, who shared the gospel at great cost himself. Suffering for the sake of the gospel encourages others to be bold. You know, people might assume it's actually the opposite way. Non-Christians assume it's the opposite way. That's why governments sometimes try to stop Christianity by persecuting people. And yet they see over and over again that what happens is that some, more often than not, when they try to persecute people, Christians, Christianity actually grows in those places where they're trying to persecute it. Uh, the, the persecution encourages people to then be more bold about sharing their faith. One of the early pastors in church history, Tertullian, put it this way. He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. When, and it wasn't just some theory that he had. He actually saw it. People were being uh, killed, crucified even for their faith, left and right. And he saw that in those places, the church was growing. Now, what's the explanation for this? Is it simply some psychological thing? I think it's more than that. I think when people bear a cost for the sake of the gospel, it reminds others of the cost that Christ bore that we would be saved. I mean, that's a way that, that we are sharing in the suffering of Christ. The scripture talks about that all the time. Paul talks about sharing in the suffering of Christ. Christ suffered to bring us life. And when people suffer to bring others the message of life, there's an illustration of Christ in that. So here's the application. Do you realize that the witness, the testimony you have, the way you are bold or not bold about the gospel has an effect on the other Christians around you? Do you realize that you can be an encouragement to others to share the gospel boldly when you bear up well under suffering for the sake of being a Christian? When you share the gospel boldly, even if it comes at a cost that encourages other people to share the gospel boldly? You know, the plain fact is that we will suffer for the sake of the gospel, to some degree at least. I mean, we live in the same world that nailed Jesus to the cross. And Jesus said, if they persecute me, they will persecute you also. Friends, we just have to realize that's part of God's plan. It's part of God's plan that those who share the gospel bear the the suffering of the gospel, that it might be advanced. Now, the second way Paul's trials serve to advance the gospel is that some people were preaching the gospel, not because they loved the gospel, but because they thought they would be taking ministry away from Paul. We see that here. Look at verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. In other words, they're thinking they're on Paul's side. They're trying to advance him. Advance him as an apostle by advancing the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. This passage is rather shocking. Some of those people that had become more bold to preach the gospel weren't doing it because they loved the gospel. They were doing it to get at Paul. Isn't that amazing? They were trying to hurt Paul's reputation. And they were saying things like, okay, that Paul, yeah, he's in jail. I wonder, wonder what he did. 
Well, come follow us. Uh, look, look how our churches are doing. They're doing so much better than Paul's churches. They were you know, sheep stealing. They were trying to take Paul's converts. They were doing it for their own self-aggrandizement. They were trying to build up their own kingdom. How does Paul react? You might think he's sad. But no, he rejoices. Because they're proclaiming the gospel. Now, a couple of really practical things, quickly. One, don't be surprised when people claim to be Christians and even know the gospel, yet do things that are utterly contradictory to the gospel and hurtful to others. Don't be surprised when you see that happen. Uh, Sometimes Christians do things that are wrong and they shouldn't do. And, And don't be surprised. And in fact, if we are surprised, let me suggest that that might be evidence of pride in our own hearts. I mean, let's face it, don't we do things for motives that if those motives were really exposed, we wouldn't be so happy about? And then why are we so surprised when somebody else does things for terrible motives as well? I recently read of a great example of this. A woman uh, wrote about her experience. She was extra happy to come to church a particular day because uh, her friend named Heather would be sharing her testimony. And this woman was excited about it because she had been the one to lead Heather to faith. And she thought that Heather would talk about how great and wonderful she was. And Heather shared her testimony and for some reason forgot to talk about this woman. And this woman talks about how she was just so angry in that moment. And that was like a wake-up call to her that, wait a minute, I should be happy about the gospel, but I'm not. And friends, we can probably relate to that to some degree. That we engage in ministry not solely for the purpose of promoting the gospel, yet for meeting sometimes our own needs for uh, trying to build into ourselves. Let's pray that we don't have that perspective. The second thing that we get from this is that we must emulate Paul's example of not being like that. I don't think Paul would be angry if his name wasn't mentioned, would he? It doesn't seem here that Paul would even be upset if somebody got up there and actually tried to put Paul down, but yet still proclaim the true gospel. That's how much Paul was excited about the gospel. Can can you imagine being that happy about the gospel that it would still be joy to you if somebody was sharing the gospel in such a way that they were trying to hurt you and yet they shared the true gospel? Pray that God would give us a love for the gospel and pray that we would rehearse the gospel over and over again so we wouldn't do that. You know, it's very tempting for churches to fall into, for people and churches to fall into that perspective that these people had who were trying to hurt Paul. I mean, we can do it. See, we, churches would, you know, they care about preserving themselves because they want to proclaim the gospel. But then somewhere down the road, it becomes not so much about promoting the gospel and more about preserving themselves. Now, of course, we hope that they go together. Uh, Friends, I want this church to be here for a long time so that it can proclaim the gospel in Greenbelt. But but self-preservation can't be the highest goal. Proclamation of the gospel has to be the highest goal. And again, hopefully those things go together nine times out of ten or more. Let me just, uh, one of the things I do so that hopefully we don't go down that road of being more protectionist than gospel promoting is regularly pray for other churches. Hopefully you see me do that every Sunday, just praying that God would prosper other churches. Why? So that, you know, it, it challenges my heart and hopefully us as a whole body 
that we would be excited and happy about what God might be doing, not here, but in other places. And we would be happy about that. Let me give you a few other hypothetical situations. Maybe somebody visits our church, and maybe we really like that person, but for various reasons, they're better served at another church, maybe because it's closer to them. Now, assuming that other church preaches the gospel, are we sad because they aren't with us? Or are we happy because we know they're in a place where they can proclaim the gospel, where the gospel is proclaimed, and they can, they can more have the gospel in their life and share it with others? Friends, I think if we're really gospel-centered in our motivation, we're going to be happy about that. What if we hear how God is blessing another church, perhaps even through somebody who used to be part of our church? Are we going to wish that that was happening here? Are we going to be bitter? Or are we going to be happy because the gospel is being advanced? Friends, the gospel is of the highest value. That's what Paul says, and that's how he lives his life. Paul doesn't judge his life based upon how circumstances are working out for him. Paul judges his life, or judges his happiness based upon how circumstances are working out for the gospel. Well, friends, may we do that too. May that be our highest goal as we look for Christ's return and know that what really counts in life wasn't our happiness in our jobs or in other places. What really counts is how the gospel is promoted. And let us pray that we would be willing to sacrifice, sometimes greatly, that the gospel would be shared and promoted. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would work in us a deep love for your gospel, that we would be happy even if circumstances worked out bad for us, yet good for the gospel, that that would bring us overall more joy than just if circumstances worked out well for us. Lord, let us contemplate the gospel and meditate on it, that you have sent your son to experience a cruel death to redeem sinners. Lord, we pray that its message would be of first importance. Lord, we pray that for ourselves. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.